John Sprecher is the lead elder of the Fellowship of Churches that we associate with. There aren't many up in this region. Uh, Green Bay is the closest, but um, it's a blessing to have him here. Like I say, we've been friends for a number of years. Appreciate him very much, he and Becky both. Thank you so much. Wow. Great to be with you this morning in Marquette. Yeah, he said don't be... Give your hand. You all came out on a great day, right? It's a beautiful Sunday. Happy Father's Day again to all of the dads. Thank you. I've got. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I've got. I've got three kids. My baby is going to turn forty this year. So uh, that makes me a really old man. But I'm married to a younger woman, so it's all good. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, seriously, we do have, uh, we're blessed with three kids, uh, all married, uh, all serving the Lord, uh, five grandkids, and they are all going for Jesus. So we're thankful for that, and uh, good to be with you today. Uh, as Pastor John said, I had really forgotten about that. I, you know, I, I remember you know, saying, I want to give some of my time to the fellowship when I was at the pastorate. And, and I did that, and all the years continued to do that. At that time, never envisioned getting to do what I do now. And uh, so uh, we have, for those that, that may not be aware, we, our, our churches are kind of concentrated in three areas. We're pretty much, or five areas, I guess I should say. We're kind of in the Northeast, uh, New York, up into Vermont. We're in the Midwest, concentration Northern Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, and then uh, Marquette. Uh, and then we have... <laughs> And then we have, you know, some other churches that are a little bit isolated, like Friend, Nebraska, and uh, some other places. Then we've got the Northwest, uh, Western Washington primarily, and then uh, down Southern Cal over to Phoenix. So those regions each have uh, elders, those who are, are pastors, leaders in those areas. And my job is just to get to connect them, work with them, and work with the churches and try to help us function together. Right now we're working through a situation in, in Illinois with a couple of the elders that are really processing some things, and I, I'm part of that partly because I'm close. But that's been my joy for the last little over a year, to travel, be uh, in all the regions, meet with all the elders, and do some international work as well. And uh, I, I want to use that as a little illustration about what God's doing in our fellowship. We, we uh, are really are not real large. We've got about 80 churches, 300 and some pastors, and uh, so we're not a huge group, but we've had significant impact around the world, and your church has as well. You've had missionaries uh, in Africa and other places. And uh, in the last year now, we started to identify some of those ministries that are happening through fellowship ministers or ministries. And uh, we have affiliate groups that are now joining with us. One of those is WAMF, uh, World Outreach Foundation. They are started in Uganda. They're in seven countries in the Great Lakes region, 200 and some churches, Bible school, orphanage, and all of that. They list as an affiliate with us and uh, all their churches. We have Tissa Wirasinga, who's in Sri Lanka, 200 churches, including one in Dubai. Uh, they're connected to us. We have uh, then another group in Nigeria. We just started, and there's a little brochure in the back, but we just got into Nigeria about uh, seven years ago. And we have about 65 churches in the fellowship there. And uh, they have one of the guys that is really a key guy for me. Is, his name is M.M. Jacob. 
He's the president of a group called the Fellowship, Christian Fellowship Evangelical. He has 89 churches, including one that just uh, recently was burned down in Joss, where uh, a couple of Al-Qaeda guys had gotten converted. They took away their, their, their uh, Qurans and gave them Bibles, and they're serving Jesus, and in retaliation, they burned down the guy's church, ran his family out of town. So, you know, those kind of things happen, but these guys are not afraid. They're just going out and getting it done. So, so M.M. Jacobs, and this is, this is where I want to make the connection. M.M. Jacob has his, his churches listed. I've got him connected with Tissa Warasinga. So we've got people from Nigeria now. We haven't, we haven't finalized all the connections, but it's going to be happening probably within the next few months. We've got people going from Nigeria who are going there to work. They can get to, to Nigeria. They work up there, and they may be everything from, from uh, domestic help to engineers. It can be anything in between. And we're connecting them with these English-speaking Sri Lankans because Nigerians are English-speaking, and they connect in church in Saudi Arabia. And did you know that 7% of, of Saudi Arabia is Christian? Not any Saudi Arabians, just all the people who are there working. And so there's a lot of Christian influence. In fact, we've got a, a church just got planted in Vancouver, B.C., a fellowship church, by a guy from the Philippines who went to Saudi Arabia and got saved in Saudi Arabia, went now to, to Canada. God just does some really cool stuff, doesn't he? All over the place. So anyway, the, the point of my story is this. I, we, we've got a, a kid from Ghana, West Africa, who goes to Uganda to Bible college, okay? Gets to Bible college at the World Outreach Foundation ministry, and he goes to Bible college. Steve Mayanja is the African director of that ministry. And... Uh, Steve uh, tells the guy, when you go back to Ghana, we'll come and help you. And we'll, we'll help you plant a church in your hometown, which is what the guy wants to do. And so we set the date in January. He's going to go. And I said, you know, we've got a network with Nigeria. And M.M. Jacob from Nigeria is going to connect with Steve Mayanja. They're going to meet in Ghana with this Bible school kid. And then we've got two guys from the church I pastored in Rockford, Bill Johnson and Mike Poole who have done a lot of work in Africa, and they go. So now we've got a team of two from Rockford, Illinois, one guy from Nigeria, one guy from Uganda, connecting with a guy from Ghana to do a church plant. So they do a crusade, and they start out. And the Ghana guy didn't wait. He'd already started doing some things, starting to get his church planted, and he's at work. And, and these, these four guys come in. They do the ministry. At the end of the week, they decide, we, we, we're going to baptize the new believers. And so they hire a Muslim truck driver to take them to a river because you've got to get them to water. So they hire this guy, and this guy is just giving them a hard time because there's more people than he planned, and he's going to have to make more than one trip, and he's just going on and on. Finally, they say, Neil, listen, this is the deal. You got the money, and here you go, and load the people up. They load them up, and they get down to the river, and they start baptizing. And they continue baptizing, keep baptizing, keep baptizing. One week's time, they baptize 250 people in the river in Ghana who are now going to be part of it. now two churches that have gotten planted. And that's that's kind of cool. And, and then it gets even better because the Muslim truck driver who's standing on the edge of the river watching all this take place finally says, would it be okay if I got baptized? So he comes in and, and Bill tells me, he said, you know, I think it might have been good because the guy didn't argue about money anymore. <laughs> so, so God's at work, and, and I just am so thrilled to be able to, to see these pieces coming together as God. Who knows what all God can put together as he does his work? And that, that's what excites me 
as we recognize God is at work. Amen? Hey, well, let me take you to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. It's uh, jumping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I, I'm going to get to the Lord's Prayer this morning. And, and in that prayer, which is recorded in a couple of different settings, one is it's recorded here in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the longest single discourse that Jesus makes. And then we also see it showed up in Luke when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray with that, that question. So I, I want to take the Matthew uh, description, and, and I want to just talk for a few minutes this morning as we, we talk about, about prayer and, and then about the focus of that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, our Father, and, and talking about that with us this morning. So let me just take you to the, to the text, and I use the New King James and and uh, if you've got something, whatever you've got, you'll have it somewhat similar. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 6, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And I'll pause there for a moment. Notice what he says several times. And when you pray, and when you pray, and when you pray. Prayer is something that probably is practiced in one form or another far more than we realize. And we probably do it more than we realize. Sometimes we, we, we assume that a prayer has to be prefaced with a heavenly father and an amen. And if it doesn't have that, you know, that little preface, it probably isn't working. But there's a lot of prayers that we are praying all the time. And even unbelievers pray. I mean, people are always praying. They're, they're calling out to something. They're looking for help. It may be some inanimate object. It may be an idol. It may be whatever, but people are often praying. In fact, they use that term, I'm praying for you. Well, who are they praying to? does make a difference, right? But, but there's that, that something within us that is always reaching out to something beyond us. And that's really, in a sense, what prayer begins to be. It's an, an expression of the heart that is reaching out, and the assumption that is being made by Jesus here is that you're going to pray. In fact, several times here, he just says, and when you pray, and when you pray, and when you pray. He gives us these instructions of what's going to happen in prayer. And, and, and we're going to talk for just a minute. It, is that private and that public prayer? Jesus is addressing those two things here. And, and the first question you have to ask is, who are we praying to and what are we praying for? If we don't have an, 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 a focus of the prayer, if we're not praying to someone then we really are not going to know whether we've gotten an answer. And in fact, the reality is, many times, I believe God wants us to pray, not because he doesn't know what we need, but he wants to connect his answers with our prayers. I'll have to say that one again because a few of us got it. God wants to connect his answers with our prayers. If God just simply gave us everything we needed every time that we, that we needed it, which he often does. I mean, he gives us way more than we deserve. He gives us more, way more than we even ask for many times. Is that not true? But, but God longs to connect his answer himself with us. 
And he wants there to be a dynamic connection between what we pray, how we pray, and what the answers are. Now, he says in this description, if you're only praying for an audience, that's as far as the prayer is going to go. Some people just pray for the audience. You only pray, you know, if you only pray when it's a public prayer, then probably you're not praying very much. And the, and the hypocrites, he said, they, they, they like to pray publicly so people will see them pray, and, and, and they love that. And Jesus said, you've already got their reward. There's not going to be much answer to that. But public prayer, now, he's not condemning public prayer. There are times we need to have public prayer. But public prayer needs to come out of the private place. And unless public prayer is coming out of the private place, it will be an empty prayer. It'll just be words that mean little or nothing. It'll be just something that I'm reciting or repeating. But public prayer that comes out of the private place is a time in which we are calling others into those prayers and we are joining together and we can say amen and we connect together believing in what God is calling us to do. Now he said, don't be like the heathen who assume many vain repetitions. They're just continually talking and going on. Consider this prayer. Here's, here's Elijah with the 400 prophets of Baal. You remember that story. And as they are cutting themselves and as they are dancing and they are calling and they are praying and Elijah mocks them a little bit, there's a little sarcasm in this thing. You know, you, you, Baal might be busy right now. He might be taking a nap. Maybe, maybe your God is, is at the, in the, you know, literally in the bathroom. He had to go take care of his needs, is what the text says. And, and so he's, he's busy. You know, he just doesn't have time for you. And they go on the whole day. And in the end, it's in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah prays, it simply was, Lord, send the fire. That was about it. It wasn't a really long, elaborate prayer. It was just simply as God. We honor you, we exalt you, show yourself strong, fire. It was done. Why? Because there had been private prayer preceding public prayer. Well, let me, let me just take another moment with this. Private prayer is the place of intimacy with the Father. It is in the private prayer that we find God's closeness and presence. We heard some of that this morning in some of our testimonies of what what God is doing. And, and, and know this, that God is longing to connect with us as a father with his children. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. That's a summary of what he said before. If a son asks for bread, is he going to give him a stone? If he asks for something good, is he going to give him a scorpion? No, he's not going to give him things that are going to be harmful to him, he's going to give things that are good, is he not? And Jesus says, if you as just human fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, if, if there is something in your heart that longs to give good stuff to kids, if that is there in a, in a small way, how much more will the heavenly father give, and listen to what he's giving, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, what's the significance of that? When Jesus says, he wants to give the Holy Spirit to us. And sometimes as Pentecostals, we get caught up in the, in, in, in the manifestations of the Spirit more than the reality of the presence of the Spirit. 
Now, I'm not negative at all on manifestation of the Spirit. Don't, don't misquote me or go away and say the wrong thing about what I just said. But here's what I, what I want to focus on for a moment. God says, I want to give my Spirit to those who ask me for the Spirit. Huh? He longs to give us of His Spirit. What, what is His Spirit? It is His very presence. It is what Jesus described as my father and I will make our home in the believer, that he will live within us. And God is longing to give us his presence. He more than anything wants to be with us. It goes all the way back to the story in the garden. In the cool of the day when God came to talk to Adam. Adam, where are you? Adam was hiding out because of sin. Sin will always keep us away from the presence of God. But God's desire is always to cancel the sin or pay the debt for the sin with the blood of Jesus so that we can be in intimate relationship with him. And that's his deepest heart's desire, that he wants to give us himself. If uh, Becky and I will, will celebrate 48 years this uh, August. Oop, I did it. Okay, back on we go. There it is. We'll celebrate 48 years. Now, I'm not a rich man, but if I were a rich man, and uh, I were to uh, travel extensively and never come home, you know, I'd just be gone, but I would send her presents, and I would make sure she had a nice car, and I would make sure that groceries were delivered, and I might even have flowers delivered. That really does work for me. It only had has happened a couple of times, but I discovered the key to her heart after 47 years was deliver flowers. <laughs> Just have them sent by the florist. Don't be cheap and go to the store and bring them home. That's me, cheap. <laughs> so so if, if, if all I were to do was to send her stuff, eventually she'd say, you know what, I got four cars. I've got this fancy house. It'd be nice if you'd come home. Because I really don't want the stuff, I want you. Now, some of you already made the connection real quickly, haven't you? See, there's, there's nothing that is more significant to us than the connection that we have with another person that we love. We don't want the stuff, we want the person. And sometimes even our prayers to God are more about the stuff than they are about the person. Huh? Are we just looking for stuff or are we looking for him? You see, the reality is if we will do what he says later in this chapter, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the stuff can be added to you, we start with him and the stuff follows. We start with his presence. We start with his relation, our relationship with him. And it is in that place that we find his work. Now, let me just throw one more thing here. And that is that it is always significant to be persistent in prayer. You know, sometimes we, we say, well, I prayed about that once and I hadn't had an answer. Or I prayed about that for 25 years and I still haven't had an answer. Jesus gives us this picture of a widow in Luke 18. He said he, he gives us this parable that men ought always to pray 
and not to faint. Men ought to always pray and not to faint. And he does it by talking about a widow who is going to an unjust judge and continues to bother him until finally he says, though I don't fear God or man, because she is continually coming, I'm going to give her the request that she has, and he satisfies that request. And Jesus says, hear what the unjust judge said. If the unjust judge would do this, how much more will a loving father take care of the needs of his people? So God hears. We need to be assured of that. Well, let me just move us on. The focus of our prayer. In this manner, pray. We've talked about when you pray and different ways we pray and different places we pray. But now, when you pray, pray this way, he gives us. And really, I don't know that it's something that we have to repeat all the time. In some circles, it's a part of every service. Uh, I use it occasionally. Uh, but as I grew up as a kid, as a, in, in our family prayers, we prayed this prayer every day as a kid growing up. Ended our prayers with the Lord's Prayer. But it really is a picture of prayer because it gives us elements that are significant. Let me take a few minutes with them. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. The reality is in the room this morning, there are probably some who even saying the word father conjures negative images. You may have been abused by a father. You may have been abandoned by a father. We're living in a culture right now where fathers are not doing too well. And I celebrate the comment we heard earlier of the number of strong fathers in this congregation. We rejoice in that. But the reality is that many of us grew up and, I, and I, I, when I say us, I'm not speaking to me personally because I had a great dad. I was blessed. But many in the church grew up with a dad who did not fit the image of a good father for whatever reason. Maybe because he never knew what a good father was. Maybe he never had a, had a model to follow. He, he had no idea what to do. Maybe he was insecure. Maybe he was threatened, whatever. We don't know. Maybe he'd been abused himself. But for many, that image of abuse, abandonment, neglect, harshness, etc., cloud our image even of saying our Father. In, in fact, you see it in some circles where people will not use the word Father. They want to have Mother God or some other God. He said, our father. Now, the picture here is father as one who cares for us, who loves us, and who longs to be with us. And, and I want to just say this. Tragically, some men have assumed that the only way to maintain authority is to never apologize for being wrong. We're humans. We make mistakes. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the best lesson I'd ever taught my kids was how to overcome failure. Because the reality is we all have failures in our lives. And, and 
I don't think a, a man ever stands as tall as when you say to your kid, I'm sorry that I judged you too quickly. I was too harsh. I was angry. I was frustrated. We make excuses, but sometimes we need to just apologize as guys, huh? And do what's right. It, it, it doesn't, it, it, it raises our level of esteem. It doesn't lower it. It, it causes people to say, okay, they, they acknowledge who they are. Because our kids know us better than anybody else does. And, and, and so, as fathers, I just would call on us, let's be real about who we are so that we don't create an image that misses the mark so that our kids have a hard time even with this prayer. Our Father. You see, here's something that God wants for us. God's intention is that he uses our homes as an illustration of his relationship with us. Think about it. The whole Old Testament, God calls Israel his wife. The whole image of the New Testament is we are the bride of Christ. Husband, love your wives. Christ loved the church. You get that whole, that imagery that God intended is that we are demonstrating the roles and the functions of, of Christ and God's relationship with his people. And In fact, let me just give you this, and it's not part of what I was going to say, but I, I'll say it quick. When we look at that whole pa- passage on husbands and wives and the relationship, the reality is we both need the cross. Men need the cross to put to death pride, ego, and our machoism. <laughs> Women need the cross to be able to receive the love that a man is supposed to be giving. That's really what Submission is, it's receiving the love of another. You, you Look at the illustration. The illustration in Ephesians 5 is, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What does the church get from Christ? It got everything from him. It, it, it got his name. It got his life. It has all of his promises. Everything that Jesus did is ours. And so we as husbands are called to make sure everything we have belongs to our wives and our families. That's a high call, isn't it? But God can help us do it. All right, let me move on. Our Father. You see, our Heavenly Father loves us enough to accept us, and He loves us enough to correct us for our own good. If we had earthly fathers who corrected us as seemed good to them, how much more our Heavenly Father who will discipline us or chasten us for our good or for our benefit so that we can become what God has created us to be. We can be His people. We can look like Him and respond like him. He is the one who gives life. He's the one who lives in us. And notice what it says, our Father in heaven. It identifies his position. He is in heaven, and he is worthy of our worship. He is the one who we call upon. He is the one we turn to. He is the one that we can honor because he is. You see, if our God is too small, we'll never have prayers answered that we need, will we? Most of the time, it's not that the problem is too big, it's that our God is too small. Our view of God too often is too small to be able to believe that he could answer the problem that's this big. And yet the God who was able to say, let there be light, and there was light, the God who is able to raise the dead, the God who is able to give life where there was none, the God who is able to breathe life into man, that God is the one that we pray to, our Father who is in heaven. Your name is worthy. He is a big God. Now notice what he says. 
The first expression is bringing heaven closer to us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is closer to us in Marquette when we are doing the will of the Father. In fact, you as the people of God are here in this city and are demonstrating the life and the love of Jesus Christ in this community and heaven comes closer to Marquette because you're here. You may not realize how significant you are sometimes, but the very fact that you are in this community of faith is a reality that you are salt and light in this place, and you are demonstrating Christ's love and life. And when you bring heaven closer because you are doing his will, loving your neighbor, loving each other, loving people around you, sharing, giving, doing whatever God has called you to do, when you're doing that, you are bringing heaven closer. And God longs to come closer to us because he longs to be intimate with us and connected to us. So we call his kingdom to come. Remember, his kingdom is in us, is it not? Jesus said, my kingdom is in you, Luke's gospel. The kingdom of God does not come by observation, but the kingdom of God is in you. So if the kingdom of God is in in us and we are praying your kingdom come, then we're saying, God, your kingdom that is in us, let it be demonstrated through us that in this community you may be seen in a way that will bring glory to the Father. Then he gets to the petition part. Give us this day our daily bread. We've got the celebration of how great our God is. We've got the understanding of who he is. We've got now the understanding a little bit of what his kingdom is about. And now he says, give us our daily bread. We usually pray for our monthly bread, our yearly bread, our 10-year bread. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Very few of us live on that ragged edge not having food unless God answers today. It's possible somebody here does, but very few of us honestly do. Now, I'm not saying that's a horrible thing. And if if you're there, God's going to answer, and God does answer. But I think we need to be reminded that our daily bread, whether we get it by the week or the month or the year, is still God's provision. It still came from him. He still wants to give it to us. He still wants to provide for us. And he still is the one who is the provider. So when Jesus said, connect your daily food, connect your daily life with the Father, that's really what he's saying. He's wanting us to be connected enough to him that we recognize every day we are dependent upon him. Our life can change in a moment, can it not? In a moment. I was in Seattle a couple weeks ago, in fact, two weeks ago to this weekend, and uh, the prior Saturday, which is now three weeks ago yesterday, my sister-in-law had gone into the hospital with pain. Uh, she'd had a cancer a couple, three years ago, was checked in January, everything was clear, and uh, she is diagnosed now within a week's time of having what probably will be an inoperable, untreatable uh, cancer that's moving very, very rapidly. So I talked to my brother, and uh, it's just like suddenly life 
turn. All the plans you have change. Everything else begins to take different perspective, doesn't it? When you get that, that call, that diagnosis, it, it, it changes what we're going to do. So we need to recognize we are in daily dependence upon our God. Daily dependence. Living in that place. Knowing that place. Now, how, 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 do, we, how do we do this? He moves now from the physical, give us this day our daily bread, to the most significant spiritual description that we could find. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Any number of those different uh, wordings, but it all comes back to this. Our forgiveness from God is based on our forgiveness of others. This is the tough part of the prayer. This is the place where, of all of these things in, in this prayer, and, and I'll just take a few more minutes on it, but it, 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 when we get to the end of it, yours the kingdom, the glory, and the honor, and in the beginning of it, hallowed be your name. And you look at the worship, you look at the petitions, you look at all the different segments of the prayer, and, and some of the things that you would think Jesus would emphasize. But the one thing that Jesus emphasizes is this one. Two verses at the end of the prayer go on to talk about this issue. Verse 14. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus doesn't give us much option in this. You know the story of the servant who owed his master an unpayable amount, $50 million, let's say, and who is owed 500 bucks by another guy. The master forgives the $50 million. And then the guy who's just been forgiven goes out and puts the $500 guy in jail. Jesus uses that to illustrate this is not the way God's kingdom works. And here's what we need to be reminded of. A life verse for me has been Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and tenderhearted one toward another, forgiving one another just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now here's the deal. If I understand that God's forgiveness has allowed an impossible gap to be closed between me and God, it really has. The old illustration from, I think, uh, what was it from? <laughs> Can't even remember. D. James Kennedy did it, Evangelism Explosion. I think it was from there, but the illustration of the Grand Canyon, heaven's on one side of the Grand Canyon and you're on the other side. And, uh, you know, if, if, if I were to take a run at that, I'd maybe get three feet before I'd be going straight down. Some of you younger guys, you might get 15 or 20 feet. <clears throat> Evil Knievel thought maybe he could do it on a motorcycle, and he took a run at it and got partway. You know, but, but humanly, it's an impossible thing unless there's a bridge across. And the illustration is simply the cross of Calvary is the bridge from heaven to earth. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ 
that cleanses us from all sin. It's what Jesus did for us, that impossible forgiveness that allows us access into heaven, that gives us hope and life and freedom. That's what Jesus has done for us. And if Jesus has done that, what right have I to withhold from somebody else? You see, every once in a while, I need to just get myself in front of the cross and say, okay, they hurt me over here. That person betrayed me over there. But what you did for me was so much more that I can't not forgive. You see, get yourself in front of the cross and recognize what God has done for you when you find it impossible to forgive that dad or Impossible to forgive that person who wounded you, hurt you, abandoned you, did whatever. Forgive us as we forgive others. And, 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 and notice the kind of work that he uses here. It is our debts, what, what we owe God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The psalmist David in his great psalm of repentance, the 51st, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this iniquity in your sight. It, it, David understood something, as did Joseph and others, that our lives are not lived just on this plane. Our lives are lived in eternal connection. It, you know, it's, it, it's interesting culturally how as Americans we tend to, and I, I should say just Americans, well, Westerners, let's just say Westerners. As Westerners, we tend to think concretely and we, t- we tend not to think spiritually. We tend to think of things scientifically, we want them to be explained, but we don't tend to think of the spiritual and dynamic of what's going on. When you go into Eastern culture, everything has spiritual meaning and significance, sometimes maybe more than is necessary, but everything has a spiritual component to it. And, and the reality is our lives have a much greater spiritual component than we sometimes realize. I, I, I love Joseph. Here's Joseph a young man who is in Potiphar's house who has, has been taken away from his family. Nobody knows him. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows what he is. Nobody's going to report anything about him to anybody. And when Potiphar's wife is seeking to seduce him during that whole process, it, it, as, as it ends, what does Joseph say? How could I do this sin against my master? Recognizing that if he committed the the act with his wife, that he would be committing adultery with his master's wife, so he's not going to sin against his master, and he's not going to sin against God. How could I do this sin against God? Joseph understood that his actions affected his relationship on a vertical level, and his relationship with God would be affected by how he handled himself sexually. There was that understanding that he lived in that dynamic. So when David says the same thing, against you and you only have I sinned, he understood that that, that adultery had, had disrupted the relationship that he had with God. And so he's seeking forgiveness, and he's seeking the blood. And, and in fact, he says, purge me with hyssop, David says, and I shall be whiter than snow in that, in that 51st Psalm. What does he say? He said, put the blood on. The hyssop was what was used on the Passover day to put the blood over the lintel and the doorpost of the house and to cover that house so that God would come over that place again and that his blood would protect them. And it's a recognition that when we sin against God, we need to acknowledge that, find forgiveness for that, and then give it to others. Why? Because here it comes. Do not lead us into temptation, 
not lead us into temptation. God, don't take us into places where we're going to mess up. And don't you love the promise in Corinthians that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will also provide the way of escape. God always gives us the way of escape. Usually we just don't take the exit ramp. We're just charging on instead of taking the exit that God's provided. Here's the way out. Take it. But deliver us from the evil one. In other words, God, let us be in places where the evil one, where Satan doesn't have a, a position or a place in which he can get a hold of us. Now, let me just give you one more thing with that one. Second Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, forgive such a one. In fact, let me, let me just give you the, the exact quote. I'm going to, I can't afford to misquote this. Second Corinthians chapter 2. And I believe he's speaking about the man who was disciplined by the church. In 2 Corinthians 2 and 8, he says, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, listen to this. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one in your sakes, for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Listen to this now. Paul said, we've forgiven this guy. I've forgiven him in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What is his place to get advantage? Unforgiveness. That's Satan's place of advantage. As soon as he can get us in a place of unforgiveness and bitterness, he immediately has us in a place where we have lost our edge and we are no longer able to function at the level we ought to and relationships are disrupted and problems begin to develop. So when, when the, the prayer is deliver us from the evil one, part of that, I believe, goes right back to this whole forgiveness issue and that is, Lord, deliver us from the devices that Satan wants to use to ineffectivize us to cause us to not be able to do what you've called us to do, to not allow us to fulfill the destiny that you've created for us, but deliver us from him for yours is the kingdom and yours is the glory and the power forever. Amen. See, that's what God wants to do. He wants to help us to be freed from the junk from the past so that we can have a glorious future in serving him and knowing him. See, we live with that anticipation and that expectation. Now, the last part of that chapter, and I'm not going to read it, but just, just get this. He, he concludes this chapter by talking about worry, which is what we often substitute for prayer. Instead of praying, we worry. Instead of calling on God, we worry. Instead of looking for the one who has the answer, we worry. And Jesus said, worry will never change anything. It's not going to make you taller. It's not going to provide for you. It's not going to do anything for you. Worry will only tire you out. In fact, it's interesting that another definition of worry is the description of an animal who is basically killing another animal, worrying that animal, wearing them out until they die. That's what worry does. What God does is meet our need. 
What God does is provide for us. What God does is give us what is necessary. You see, the worry doesn't provide, but seeking his kingdom does. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. Too often, worry causes us to miss blessing. Worry causes us to miss the stars, huh? (laughs) Worry causes us to not see what God wants us to see. Worry causes us to miss out on what God wants to give. So I invite you today, as we celebrate Father's Day, to know the freedom that God gives. If there's issues that need to be resolved, and lots of times there are, bring them to God. Father, my heavenly Father, he's different than an earthly father in the sense that he never has to ask for forgiveness because he always does the right thing. But I'm thankful for earthly fathers who are giving it all they've got trying to be all they can to show God to those who are around them. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for the privilege that we've had of being together in this room today. Lord, I thank you for the simplicity of this prayer, our Father. Lord, I I pray for the fathers in the room, young men who will become fathers, Lord, I pray, may we fulfill that high calling that demonstrates our Heavenly Father. Lord, we're not claiming perfection. We often need forgiveness. Let us never hesitate to seek it. So, Father, I pray today in this room, may your Holy Spirit touch every heart. And if there are some in the room who have not yet been able to really say, My Father in heaven, Pray even today, may this be a day when we discover your life, your hope, and your purpose in Jesus' name.